Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a very powerful and very profound concept, uh, what we call the spirit of the law, or what I've been calling the spirit of the law. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the spirit of the law, this is mission critical for every believer, every single believer. We need to possess this. We need to have this. We absolutely have to have this. And as I mentioned last week, this is something that is going to change every facet of your faith. It will affect the way you read the word. It will affect the way you apply the word. It's going to affect your walk. It's going to affect your talk and how you proclaim the gospel. Every aspect is going to be affected. And before we really get into today, I just want to kind of circle back and I just want to briefly, just as an overview remind you what this is and what this is not. And I want to begin by telling you what this is not. I'll just share a story. Several years ago, I had a, a gal talk to me about her experience at a Christian university. It's, it's a local one. I'm not going to name it, but well-known. And she was in class. And in class, the professor ran an exercise and the exercise basically was this. He had them read a particular passage in Scripture, the entire class. I need you to read this, and they go through it. Then he proceeded to ask them, one by one, what did it mean to you? What did it mean to you? What did it mean to you? And all the students, they're, they're coming out, and they, they have different answers. They understood it differently. They began to interpret it differently. After that, he proceeds to ask them, who is right and who is wrong? And then, of course, the students engage, and, well, this person's, this person's right. I agree with this person for this, this, and this reason. And another one said, well, I don't agree with that person, and here's why. They're not thinking of this. So at which point, the professor comes to the crescendo of the exercise and said, listen, none of you are wrong. All of you are right. Because the Lord can speak to each one of you, and I agree with that. But unfortunately, the, the moral of what his exercise was is no matter how you read it, whatever you take away, that is truth. That is truth. I want to be very clear. When I start using the term spirit of the law or the spirit of Torah, that is not what I am talking about. Where you get to play the spirit of the Torah card, you go to read something because you want to justify your actions or because you want an easier life. It's more convenient for you to operate a specific way that you play the spirit of the law card. Well, I, well, the way I understand this, it says this. That is not the spirit of Torah. The spirit of Torah is explicit. It's where you go to the word and the way God meant it to be received, that's how you receive it. With no pollutions, no distortions of man. That's what the spirit of Torah is. All right? Today... As we continue, I want to press this issue just a little bit further. Next week, we're going to get back into the actual book of Galatians. And uh, we're going to begin to finish off because we're coming to the tail end of this series. But I thought it important to go one more week on this topic because I want to provoke thought. I want to provoke some serious thought. I want you to be mindful when you go to the word of God. This needs to be on the forefront of your mind, the spirit of the body. What is God trying to convey to me? And what is my flesh trying to tell me it's saying? You've got a battle between the flesh and the spirit. You need to receive what God wants for you and don't distort it. And so 
we're going to look at some examples, and really today's more fun, at least in my opinion. It's more fun. I'm just going to, it's going to be kind of a potpourri of various um, scriptures that we're going to go through uh, that are going to be a little bit different than what we looked at last week, okay, if, if, or the week before. If you remember in our last message, what we looked at is we looked at Matthew 5, Yeshua, He's going through, this is what I call the treatise on Torah, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And he's explaining the Torah. Well, okay, you've heard, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, you've heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, and we saw this situation, which was absolutely perfect example of what the spirit of Torah really is. But Yeshua, he's saying, you've heard this, but this is what it means. And so he brings all this clarity. Today is going to be a little bit different. Today is going to be a lot different because we're going to be looking at passages that don't possess that. You have to go find it. So you have to know what is, there, what is he trying to convey because the punchline isn't there. We were given the punchline last week. And so we're going to be looking at the spirit of Torah in a, in a different way, but you're going to see how valuable it is. And this is just a fragment. This is just a fragment. What we're going to go through today is a fragment of what exists in Scripture. But it's to bring awareness for no other reason than that. So with that said, I want to open up to Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, now listen, there are some standing here who shall not taste death. Now look at this. Till. Till. They see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm going to tell you, just read it for what it says. And now you realize the need for the spirit of Torah. You see, you realize there's a need. And why do I say that? Well, with all due respect, there are some standing here. Yeshua made the statement in the first century. Over 1,900 years ago, he made the statement... And what he just said is there's people standing here and they're not going to die until I come back. They're, they're not going to die. I'm, they're going to come back. I want you to think about something. <laughs> you know anybody 1,900 plus years old here? There is nobody 1,900 years. What is he saying? Ask a counter-missionary, ask an Orthodox Jew today what Yeshua is really declaring. And he will tell you they are, he is declaring that he himself is a false prophet. This is how they read it. This is one of the arguments, and there are hundreds of them. But one of the arguments of a counter-missionary to show that he is a false prophet is that he did not return, and everyone's dead from that generation. Virtually every single person that was alive in that generation, they're gone. They don't exist. So what do we do with this? Well, let me take you to Matthew 24. I want to show you another passage, and we're just going to kind of build into this. In Matthew 24, verse 29, the famous passage, Matthew 24, all about the end times, about tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of the... Oh, this is interesting. This has nothing to do with where I'm going. <laughs> but for those of you who are wondering when Jesus is coming back, is it going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Pay attention to what he just said. Immediately after... After, in the Greek, it's meta, and I want to be very clear, when you look at it, it's in the accusative. 
It's not the genitive. It's not the dative. In other words, what I'm saying, there's only one way to translate the word after. That's huge because we're talking about after tribulation. Okay? So that answers your question. He's not coming until after tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So those signs of the sun being, we read this right in the prophets and Joel, those aren't going to happen until after the tribulation. This is the crescendo of the tribulation. Stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So you have this tribulation period, and then the crescendo is the sun doesn't give its light, the stars start to fall, and then all of a sudden, the ultimate crescendo, Yeshua himself, comes back. All right? Continuing on. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now we're going to get to the point. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, you know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Virtually saying the exact same thing that he said in Matthew 16. I mean, if you're sitting there listening to his teaching, you're like, well, we're going to be here when he comes. This generation will not pass away. Again, the rabbis will take you to the passage in CC. Yeshua is a false prophet. To which I would respond, this is why you need to have the spirit of Torah. This is why you need to have the spirit of God. To understand Yeshua's words are spirit. They're spirit. And you cannot understand. No one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. You need to have the Ruach HaKodesh. That way you can extrapolate the true meaning, what he is really saying. Otherwise, you come to false conclusions, like Yeshua is a false prophet. When in fact, we know that he's not, right? So what do we do with this? Nobody here is 1900 years old. We know that entire generation is gone. They've all died. This is a fact, right? Well, let me take you to Mark, because we're given a little clue to kind of put all of this together. In Mark chapter 8, Yeshua says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation. I want to stop here because we're given a massive hint. This is a massive clue as to understand, to know, we're going to go get the spirit of Torah here. When he just said, this generation shall not pass... We learned something about what that generation was that Yeshua came to. It was an adulterous and sinful generation. Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation, seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this is vital to understand. Yeshua came to a wicked and adulterous generation. It was evil. In fact, when you read into the Gospel of Luke, we actually uh, discover the reason for the destruction of the temple was because this generation that existed in Yeshua's day did not know the time of their visitation. This is how wicked that even the destruction of the temple came because of this generation. And so you need to appreciate something about his generation. It was vile. Absolutely vile. That's our first clue. Okay, so my words in this adulterous, sinful generation continuing on. 
Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. Mark 9, 1. This is the next verse. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death. And here we go again. Till, heos in the Greek, it means till, until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, you have to start defining some terms to put this together. You got to go get the spirit of the Torah. There are some. Who are the some? The answer to that, we just went through this. It's the wicked. It's the wicked. And so when you have this in mind, things start to lay out so beautifully. There are some standing here who will not taste death. Think about this. Just think about the coming of Yeshua. When Yeshua comes back, do the righteous die? They do not. The wicked die. Who's he talking about? He's talking about an evil and adulterous generation. He's talking about the wicked. And when he comes back, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to be dealt with. They're going to be destroyed. And so when we understand this, and we understand that concept, well, then that, now you realize, oh, wait a second. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about the eternal death, what John calls the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. See, but Yeshua didn't say that. Wouldn't that have been nice? So, I mean, in all these other passages, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away. They will not experience the second death until the coming of the Now, you know what? There'd be no questions. But that's not how Yeshua does it. Have you ever studied his words? You read, you read the Gospels? His sayings are filled with mysteries. They're only meant for those who bear the Spirit of God. That's it. And so you look at this, this is very common in Yeshua to speak like this, to speak in riddles. And that's why his disciples asked, why do you speak to them in parables? And again, as I mentioned last week, because to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of God, but to them it has not been given. And so his words are encoded. And so when he speaks specific things, you can't always take it hyper-literally. You can't take it at face value. There's something else being conveyed. You need to go get it. You need to go find it. And when you understand things like this, as we're looking here, uh, whether it's in Matthew 16, uh, uh, Matthew 24, uh, Revelation 2, all this stuff, Mark 8, Mark 9, it all comes together. Then other passages start to fall in. Once you have the spirit of the Torah, then you hear the clear line of communication. I'll just give an example. John 8, 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Again, every single person that followed him is dead. And what did the Jews, how did the Jews respond? Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. Now, it's interesting that they bring Abraham and the prophets into the mix. What do we know about Abraham and the prophets? They kept his word. They walked in holiness, and they're like, what are you talking? You are talking crazy. This is crazy because they're all dead. You have a demon, they say, Abraham is dead in the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Oh, they're so frustrated. 
Let me take you to another passage. This time, I want to take you to the Torah. Before we do that, I need to give you a friendly reminder of something about the Torah that all ties in here. And that is Romans 7.14. For we know that the Torah is spiritual. The Torah is a spiritual document. Yeshua comes on the scene, he says, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. And you read all his teachings and they're encoded. Many of his teachings are, they're riddled with riddles. They are. And he says things at a point blank value that are very, very confusing to people. It doesn't even make any sense. Oh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. How did his disciples under that? They immediately said, well, it's because we've taken no bread. That's not what he meant. He had to come out and bring clarity for them. Beware of the teaching, the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And one thing I, I got to tell you is that when you read Yeshua's teachings in the gospel, it is the same mouth speaking as what I read in the Torah. It is the same. They read identically. If you don't pick up on this, you're going to have problems when you go to the Torah. Because you're going to come across passages that you're going to read hyper-literally, and you're going to tell you miss the whole point of the sermon. You're going to miss the whole point of the scripture. Let me give you an example. Going to Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Seems pretty straightforward. Just as straightforward as Yeshua saying, if anyone keeps my word, no one's going to taste death. Okay? And we're not necessarily using all these intellectual, mystical words to show you, hey, man, I'm speaking in the spirit. You're just flat out telling you, they'll never see death. Here we come to the Torah. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It's a very simple, straightforward commandment. Now, just to help you appreciate this, I just want to show you a clip of oxen actually treading out the grain. <laughs> The reason I showed you this video clip is I want you to see, this is a real thing. We've been doing it for thousands of years, especially back in biblical times and, and, and when, when Israel's coming out of Egypt. When you make this commandment in the Torah, when you state that every Israelite knew exactly what it meant. See, the thing is, is when you have oxen going around, why would you muzzle an ox? In other words, you're preventing it from eating. You're preventing it from eating some of the grain that it is in fact threshing. Why would you do that? You want them as strong and as capable as possible. They should be able to eat the fruit of their own labors. They're in the midst of that. So you should not muzzle an ox while it treads out to the grain. Understood? However, as we read this in the Torah and we read the commandment, is this what is being conveyed? Is this the spirit of the Torah? According to the Apostle Paul, it is not. In fact, I want to show you. And that's why it's so important you pay attention to his writings. This is a man anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh. And he, he goes and gets the spirit of the Torah every time. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? 
Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. So he comes with analogy after analogy after analogy, all with making the point of whoever lives or preaches according to the gospel is to live according to the gospel. If they labor in the gospel, they're to reap from the gospel. Nobody goes to war at their own expense. This is his point. And so there's obviously a backstory here. There's, there's something going on with the Corinthians that Paul is having to come in and rebuke them. But listen to what he goes on and says in verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? Think about that statement. Here he's saying that those who labor in the gospel, they're to partake of the gospel... And now he tells them, this is not my fabrication. This is not the pollutions of man. This is not Paul the Apostle's opinion. Doesn't the Torah teach the very thing? And then we move on. For it is written in the law of Moses. Oh, there it is. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Absolutely amazing. Look at what he says next. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Powerful. Is it oxen? Because I read it. I said, well, it's pretty clear. You don't muscle an ox while it treads out the grain. How hard is this? We got oxen all over. They're treading the grain. This makes sense. We don't want to prohibit them. We want them as strong as possible. Torah makes sense. Paul's saying it's not oxen. You're missing it. It's not oxen that God's concerned about. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt that it is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. Perfect example of, boy, you need to go get the spirit of Torah. Because see, if I physically am just worried and concerned about making sure we don't muzzle the oxen, completely missing it. Completely missing the teaching, the spirit that God is conveying to his people. And unfortunately, the only people that actually get to receive this, they bear the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh is in them. No one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. This is a reality. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. In the pastoral, the first pastoral epistle, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and a labor is worthy of his wages. See, he quotes this exactly in this context every time because he understands what the passage means. I'm going to tell you something right now. You want to read the Torah the way the Apostle Paul read it. You want to extrapolate the deep inner truths of what God is conveying. That's what you want. That's what we're after. And that's why I say, this is a critical mission. This is mission critical. Okay? Let me give you another example. Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And then we come to this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Seems pretty straightforward. You're to bind these things on your hand. They're going to be as frontlets. You're to bind them on our forehead. They're to be bound on our forehead and on our hands. Again, what does that mean? Ask an Orthodox Jew today and they will cry out, Tefillin. 
It means to fill in. It means in modern day terms, uh, phylacteries, more commonly understood, phylacteries. That's what it means. This is what it looks like. This is what tefillin looks like. You'll notice when you go to Israel, the Jews, you'll notice Jews everywhere with tefillin. Okay? And even here, if you're in Orthodox sectors, you will notice they have tefillin on. I want to be very clear, and I, I mean, I don't want to go super deep. I could on, on the tefillin. But understand, when they don the tefillin, uh, everything from the time it's created, okay? Every aspect, you have no idea how many rules and regulations are followed to the T for it to be a legitimate tefillin. It just in creating it. I mean, you got to have a special scribe. He's got to use a special pen with special ink, special paper, the leather. Of course, it's got to be kosher. I mean, there's all these requirements that have to be met. And not just that. And then to don the tefillin, to put them on, there is a specific way you put the tefillin on. You'll notice this guy has it wrapped around his arms. And you're to wrap it around your forearms seven times. And the Jews, as they're doing this, they are considering, they are binding themselves to the Lord. Very meaningful. They're binding themselves to the Lord. Ultimately, and only to come down to the hand at the end, and you can't see it here, but what they'll do is they'll wrap it in such a way that it will create a sheen. The Hebrew letter sheen. Okay, obviously very significant. Most of you understand that. And so every aspect of this is well thought out. It's not, yeah, we just throw this stuff on and, you know, we go about our way. Uh-uh. They're very mindful as they put it on. It's very, very meaningful to them. The two parts that I want to point out mostly, and this is, this is the crux of it, and here you have the tefillin, uh, this is the shell rosh and this is the shell yod. You'll notice on the arm and on the head. You notice they're just perfectly square boxes. That's what they have to be. They have to be perfectly square. And what's interesting is there is a compartment in each of these. Actually, this only has, it's just open. It's one compartment. Here, there are four compartments. Four separate compartments in the shell roche on the head. And within that, we have specific scriptures. We have Exodus 13, 1 through 18, but they divide it into two. And then you have a passage, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which we're reading right now. And 11, 13 through 21, you'll recognize this is out of the Shema. This is the Shema, okay? And so that's what, when they do it, and typically, uh, Orthodox Jews, I say typically, uh, they dawn the tefillin in the morning. They'll never dawn it on Shabbat. You won't see it in the synagogues. When you go to, to Jerusalem, you will not find it any tefillin anywhere on Shabbat. They don't wear it on holy days, um, but they only wear it the six days of the week, and the, I'm not going to get into why, but okay, so... Here you have, this is very, very meaningful. You have specific scriptures that are going into that. And what are they about? What are these scriptures about? They're explicit. They're about binding on your hand and on your forehead. That's what, that's what these scriptures are about. Now, this gets more fascinating when you actually discover, if anybody were at, were at Passover this year with me, if you were at our Passover, I talked about the mark of the beast I talked about the mark of the beast versus the mark of God. And one thing we get into Revelation, we read that the mark of the beast, it goes on the hand and on the forehead. Most Christians have no clue that the Torah talks about the mark of God. It is on the hand and on the forehead. And what is fascinating, there are really only two things mentioned in all of Scripture, in all of the Torah, 
in regard to binding on sign on your hand and on your forehead, the first one has to do with Passover and the blood of the lamb. By observing Passover, this deliverance that, that Israel was given, they received this, that the blood was shed, and only through the shedding of the blood were they delivered. That, then we're told in Exodus 13, through this observance, you shall bind it as a sign on your hand, and it shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It is the first sign. And then you come later on in the Torah, in regard to observing the commandments of God, and what do you know? That statement comes forward again. That statement comes, and you shall bind them. What? The commandments of God. They should be bound. This observance of the commandments as a bound on your hand and on your forehead. Very, very powerful. The other thing I was going to point out about this, and I'll get back to the point I'm making right now. You'll notice as they bind the tefillin, uh, the straps... Most of the time you see it on the left hand. Sometimes you see it on the right hand. Uh, the reality is, is it goes on the less dominant arm. Okay, so this, is, this kind of all plays together. Uh, the dominant arm does all the work of the world. But the lesser dominant arm does not. It's, it's reserved for the Lord. It's reserved for that. And so this is why you see that they bind these things like that. Now, the question I want to get to and then I'm going to circle back to where I was going just a moment ago. Is this what God intended? When he says in Deuteronomy 6, 8, you should bind them as a sign on your hand. There shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They're literally putting scripture in boxes and placing them on their head and on their forehead. Is that what he is referring to? Well, all you need to do is go to Exodus, go to the first passage. And you realize that is not what is being commanded. They're taking this hyper-literally. The Sadducees never took it this way. The Karaites never took it this way. But the Pharisees took this quite literally. In fact, you can find remnants of tefillin that date back to Yeshua's day. So the Pharisees were donning these things in Yeshua's day. All right? Well, let me take you back there to Exodus 13. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in the day, that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up uh, from Egypt. Okay, so the, the blood of the lamb is shed. Now we observe the Passover. Now we observe the Pesach lamb. And then we go to verse Oh, I didn't put it up here. But verse 9, and more important, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought them out of Egypt. So, oh, I did put it up here. Never mind. All right, so here you get to see, and this is my point, is as you look at the commandments and how it's laid out that you bind it on the sign of your hand, it's very specific. The observance of Passover and the fact that I'm declaring Passover to my children, the law, the Torah of the Lord is in my mouth. I'm making the declaration. I am observing it. By that, you bind it as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. See, this is why Passover, this is why Yeshua is so very important, right? When you look at this. Now, interestingly enough, the very same type of verbiage is used in Deuteronomy 6. And that I didn't put up here. But in Deuteronomy 6, it says the very same thing. When your son asks you in time to come, why, what are the meaning of these commandments? 
They're to, they're to tell them, why are they asking them, these children? What do you mean by these commandments? Because their parents are doing them. They're actually walking out the commandments to the children. Why do we got to do this? Why do we got to keep the Shabbat holy? Because the Lord delivered us. It goes back to the Passover lamb. It goes back to the blood of the lamb. Because of what the blood of the lamb did, this is why we do that. And the observance of this, and you can read Deuteronomy 6, or you can go to Deuteronomy 11. The observance of this, by observing his commandments, that's what it means to bind them as a sign on your hand and to be as frontlets between your eyes. Very, very powerful. Especially then when you want to jump to Revelation and it says the dragons enraged with the woman goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Messiah Yeshua. Very powerful. Very powerful, right? So, but it's the actual doing. It's the actual doing. You, you think, you know, there's all sorts of scriptures that come to mind. You know, like in Luke chapter 9, Yeshua says, who's ever put his hand to the plow and looking back, it's not worthy of the kingdom of God. It's not literally talking about you putting your hand to the plow, but he's talking about you went out and started walking in the kingdom, observing the kingdom, but you stopped. You stopped observing it. And so I, I bring that up because you think about the signs being put on your hand. Hand represents the actual doing. The forehead represents the meditation. That we're meditating on these things. And as you know, we're judged on our meditations. And as you know, the things that we meditate on, we will eventually do. We will walk them out. This is our heart. Amen? Now, taking this a step further, just building on this, going to the very next verse, uh, we read Deuteronomy 6, 9. This is right after Deuteronomy 6, 8. We just go, you're to bind them as a sign on your hand. And then the very next verse, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, this is actually a mezuzah on, off of Zion's gate in Jerusalem. Okay, and so they literally believe, obviously, in this mezuzah, interestingly enough, the exact same sheets of paper that are in the tefillin, minus Exodus, same ones are in the mezuzah. So they put those, and they literally plaster them on, on their doorpost. I have a mezuzah on my house, on my doorpost in our home. The symbol's powerful, it's meaningful to me. But the question is, getting into the spirit of Torah, is this what God intended? Is this what he meant when he said, you are to write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates? That's the question. I mean, that is the question. I'm going to tell you that's absolutely not. That is not what he means. In fact, just to prove this, here we are in Deuteronomy 6, 9. If we just continue to read in Deuteronomy, we read something really fascinating. And it pertains to the house. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house lest you be doomed to destruction like it, you shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Isn't that interesting? Here's the warning that we're not to breach the premises of our home. We're not to bring things, unclean things, things of the world into our house. That would include books, magazines, types of movies, all of which are filled with witchcraft today. They're filled with things that have been dedicated to false gods, I mean, everything is just, it, there's so much witchcraft that out there, it's, it's, it, it makes me want to vomit. Are you bringing those things into your home? Because when it says you're to write the commandments of the Lord on the doorposts and on your gates, this is what it is referring to. You're not to bring that evil into your home. You will be doomed to destruction like it. 
This is powerful, very applicable. Let me build on this and show you a real life example of what I'm saying is not, I'm not spiritualizing this. This is, this is exactly God's intent in Jeremiah 17, 21. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in, oh, by the gates of Yerushalayim, nor carry a burden, what? Out of your houses on the Sabbath day. So think about this. What do we know about the Shabbat? It's the fourth commandment. We're to keep the Sabbath holy. And right within this passage, it is telling you, do not breach the Sabbath by working on that day. We're, to keep, we're not to work on this day. But if I go working and going about my business as I go into the gates, as I'm doing this in and out of my home, what happens? I am not writing the commandments of God on my doorposts of my house or on my gates. I'm in breach. And so you just start to think about it. Just start to think deeper. Will you be judged for not affixing a mezuzah on your doorpost, though I have one and I love it and it's meaningful? Will you be judged because you don't bear tefillin? No. You're going to be judged for breaking the Shabbat. You're going to be judged for committing adultery. You're going to be judged for committing idolatry. You're going to be judged for coveting. You will be judged in the end for that. This is what we need to get to. And this is why I'm telling you, when we go to the Torah, you can tell, I can smell them a mile away. People that are given to the flesh, people that are given to legalism, they go to the Torah and the devil has a field day with them. And they come out broke. They got come out out of the Torah with nothing of value that is going to help them overcome, that is going to equip them against the deceptions of the enemy. We need what God intended us to have, the great riches of the kingdom. Amen? Let me further press this point. Because I want to show you the use of terminology that we found in Deuteronomy 6. Such as, you know, binding his commandments on our hand and on our forehead. Writing them on the doorposts of our house and gates. We find this terminology elsewhere. And it's worthy of note. And let me give you an example. In Proverbs 3, 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Oh, Bind them, bind them, kashar in the Hebrew. Bind them around your neck. If I'm to read this exactly how you would read Deuteronomy 6, 8, that means I would have to go get leather straps and I would have to start getting boxes and I would have to write all the commandments or specific commandments pertaining to, to chesed, loving kindness and amet and truth. And I would put them on there and I would have to bind them around my neck. Exact same word used in Deuteronomy 6, 8, as we find here. Obviously, this is not what is being conveyed. This is not literal. When it says you shall bind them a sign on your hand and on your front there, or bind them around your neck, means you take them everywhere you go. You do not leave. You buy truth and you do not sell it. You do not forsake it. You cling to it everywhere you go, whether you go into your house or out of your house, in your gates, out of your gates. The righteous commandments of God come with you. That's the reality. You shall write them. Look at this. Write them. It's the same Hebrew word that we just read in Deuteronomy 6, 9. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now you'll notice you're not, we're not going to be calling a cardiologist and saying, hey, I got a job for you. I need the commandments. I need this scroll. And I need you to actually etch them with your laser technology on my heart. This is not what, this is not what it's saying. And so, you know, we laugh at some of this stuff, you know, but the reality is 
You can take, if you don't take the collective together and you start reading specific things hyper-literally in the Torah and not getting to the spirit of the Torah, you are going to be a train wreck. And you're going to be distracted. You're going to start focusing on the wrong things. See, this is what happened to Orthodox Judaism. And it, it's painful to, to see what they've gone through. You know, I can, I can tell you this. Um, being in Israel, I, I went down Ben Yehuda Street, and I'm walking down, and I spent a lot of time there because I like talking to the Jewish people. It's a good opportunity uh, to talk to them about Yeshua in a very unintimidating, it's not a synagogue, it's not down at the wall, which I did do that too, but it's a very unassuming, you could just talk and have relationship. One of the things that is bizarre, and you, if you go there, don't, you know, don't believe me, just go and check it out for yourself, is you walk down Ben Yehuda Street, you'll see Orthodox rabbi carrying a little portable table, and you're like, what's going on? Just walking on, the, and all of a sudden, plops it up, spreads out his tefillin. You can rent tefillin. So as the, as the Orthodox are coming and going, and they're just walking down the streets, they literally have a little renter to fill in, and right on the street corners, they're renting to fill in. So what Jews will do, you watch this, it was amazing, is uh, they'll come in and they'll, they'll don the to fill in, they get the prayers thing, they do all this, and I, I got to tell you, see, when I see the to fill in, I think of the mark of God. I think of the blood of Yeshua. I, I think of keeping his commandments. I think that this is the, this is the mark of the elect. And so there's, there's, there's great conflict within me. And as I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm watching the Jews come up and other Orthodox, they're, they're doing this, all of a sudden I get hit with Matthew 6. When Yeshua is teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand up praying in the synagogues and who stand on street corners to be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. When you pray, go to your father in a secret place and your father who is in secret will reward you openly. And so you have this conflict. You have this love for the Jewish people. I get the tefillin. I get the meaning. It's just beautiful in that. And you're crushed in heart because they're completely missing it. They haven't been taught by the rabbi, by Rabbi Yeshua, and you ache. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. So when you go to Israel, it's painful. It's, it's beautiful. It's a blessing. And there is heartache because you ache for the salvation of the people. And it's painful to see this stuff. See, the reason they're doing this, the reason they're dawning on this is not because Yeshua is their rabbi. It's because the men, men have established this. Other rabbis have established this, and this is, they see this as part of their culture. They want to identify with what is Jewish. I get that. They need to be taught by the rabbi. And if we're going to go to the Torah, I'm going to tell you, if you try to circumvent Yeshua and having a relationship with him, you're going to come out destitute and broke. That's just a reality. Let me give you another example of, in Deuteronomy 10.16. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Could you imagine if I called them oil today and said, I got a job for you. It's a little bit different. I need a circumcision of the heart if you could come over here and bring your tools. Obviously, what my, the point I'm making here is Torah is entirely a spiritual book built on spiritual premise and, and spiritual principles, and it speaks in the spirit. And we need to hear the Spirit. Psalm 39, verse 1, to the chief musician, to Jedithun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth 
with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Well, we shouldn't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. What is going on here? What do you mean, stick a muzzle? And obviously, he's not talking about a literal muzzle. This is figurative. You've got to understand what's the point. He's going to restrain his tongue lest he sin. Okay? And I'm giving you funny ones. I'm giving you easy ones. But there are many other ones that are not so overt. There are many other ones that can be very, very dangerous if we're not extrapolating the truth. You know, we need to be careful we're not laboring in vain. You know, I think of, of looking at rabbinic Judaism and what it has become over the centuries and all these things that we talk about, tefillin and mezuzahs and all these things where they believe they're literally fulfilling the mitzvah, the command by doing these things, is frightening. It's frightening. That's why you mourn for them. You want them to have, you want them to have truth, pure truth, the spirit of the Torah. You want them to have Rabbi Yeshua. You think of what Yeshua says in Matthew 15, 9, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain. I don't want vanity. I don't want all the work that I do here on earth to be for naught. God help us. Amen? Let me give you another example. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may bring may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. Now, most of you identify as being Torah observant. I know you do. How many of you have a parapet around your house? There's, there's a few people that do. You might live in the cities. You might, have, you might live uh, wherever, of old houses. There are a few people that actually have parapets. Most of you who identify as Torah observant do not have a parapet. Are you a bunch of Torahless wretches? <laughs> See, this is the thing. This is where you need to understand the spirit of Torah. When, so when someone goes to play the card, and I mention this because it's happened. Oh, really? Do you, you're Torah observant? Do you have a parapet? You built a parapet around your roof. This is the tip. You need to understand the spirit of Torah. Obviously, nobody should be on my roof. Okay? It's very steep and very dangerous. I won't go up it. I will not go. I'm not going to put even a ladder and go up it. I'll call Dan the man. But <laughs> point being is, are you without the Torah? Are you in rebellion because you don't have a parapet? Well, hyper literally, you would say, yes. The spirit of Torah would say, absolutely not. The whole concept of this commandment is that when people come into your house, you have safe conditions for them. You're not going to put them in a dangerous situation where they could get hurt or killed. You know, if I have a bunch of electrical wires hanging out of my walls, I'm not going to call and say, bring your kids. Let's have, you know, let your kids play. This room's you know, on, basically on fire with electrical, and they're surely going to go to the wires and touch them. Nobody would do that in their right mind because they're going to get hurt. See, the concept, the spirit of Torah, the book of Torah is all about love. And it's about my concern for my neighbor. And do you understand? The, you see, I mean, see, we're going to all these different passages. And what you need to realize is the need to have the spirit of Torah, to have understanding. I mean, let's go to the last example I want to give you. And this is a perfect example of how important it is to recognize the spirit of Torah. And one that is not as overt as the ones we've been having fun with. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed. 
Lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Okay, it's a pretty straightforward commandment. Here's the second one. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And here's a third. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. So essentially, we have three commandments here, uh, very explicit, and they all appear to be very independent of one another, very different than one another. I'm going to tell you, when you look at this closer, what you're going to realize is something pretty amazing. They're all related. In fact, these illustrations, you have three different illustrations, and yet they're crying out one thing. They're declaring one commandment. And I got to be honest with you, again, going back to the reality of how the, you see, you look in the Gospels at Yeshua's teachings and the way he teaches, I challenge you, go to the Torah, it's identical. It is the same mouth. It's the same presentation. It's the same mannerisms. It's the same verbiage. It's frightening. And I'll give you an example. In Matthew 9, John's disciples, they come to Yeshua and say, uh, Rabbi, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples, they're not fasting. And Yeshua responds, can, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And this is what he says. He gives this illustration. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them? There's a time coming when the bridegroom will be taken, and then they will fast. And then he says this. I mean, you want to talk about parallels? It's, it's unbelievable. Then he says, no one puts an unshrunk piece of cloth on an old garment. Or else it pulls and tears away. And he gives another illustration. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst. And the wine is ruined. It's lost. And so this is what's amazing. He gives analogy after analogy. One teaching. One teaching. He's getting to one point. What I'm telling you is this is exactly what we see happening in the Torah. This is exactly what we see happening here. There's a point being stressed. And if you approach this hyper-literally, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the spirit of Torah altogether. And so what I want to do is I want to take this piece by piece. We're going to look at each one of these three quickly. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, let's clear this board off. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed. Okay? The first thing I want to point out here is this word vineyard. The word vineyard. Very, very important Old Testament, New Testament, this word is used of Israel over and over again. Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So it's important you start picking up on some terms because we get little clues. Just like we do in the New Testament, we're given little clues. Well, here's our first clue. This is really, really possible, uh, powerful. And so the vineyard's Israel. And what do we know about Israel? What is it called not to do? It's called not to mix with the world. That's what they're called to do. They're not to do this. This is what we call syncretism. We're not to do this. We're not to get involved in this. Again, I want to give you a real life example of what this looks like and what Israel was called to. Going to Ezra chapter 9, men, they come to Ezra and they tell him, hey, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, they've not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And in verse 2, we read, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, something the Lord prohibited because these wives would take them away and to serve pagan gods. Just read the story of Solomon. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. And then so that the holy seed, 
Literally. This is the very the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Now we just read that you're not to sow mixed seed in your vineyard. And here we come to a real life example where Israel fell into this trap where they breached Deuteronomy 22. They were not listening to the commandment of the Lord. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Now, this is what's interesting. There is revival going on during Ezra's day, during Nehemiah's day, and they come to their senses. And as we come to Nehemiah uh, 9.2, then those of the Israelite lineage, what did they do? They separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their father. See, the vineyard is to be holy. It is not to be mixed. There's to be no mixing of seed. What did Yeshua say in Matthew 13? 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed, oh, what? Good seed, good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. See, Yeshua is making the same point. What we see happening throughout the Torah and even outside in further into the Tanakh. See, the whole warning is, is we know that we're not to sow mixed seed. And when mixed seed comes into play, we know who's behind it. It's the enemy. He is coming to sow tares. He is coming to mix the seed with the vineyard, with Israel. And it's abominable. It's abominable. It's a perverse thing when we look at this. I want to move on, moving from this one. And I'm going to tie this all together in, in a moment. But moving on to verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. And I've talked about this many times. The first thing you need to recognize, an ox is a clean animal. A donkey is unclean. That's the first tip off. We have un the clean being mixed with the unclean. This is not kosher on any level. Secondly, this statement, you shall not, you're not, you're not to, to literally plow an ox and donkey together. No farmer in their right mind would ever do that. This absolutely makes no sense. And this is the red flag. As you're reading through this in Deuteronomy 22, and you're looking at these three commandments that are all essentially one, and there's another one that goes along with it. We're not going to cover that today. But the point being is, is when, when you look at this, it makes no sense. The ox would get hurt. They would battle each other. Nothing would get done. Nothing would, you know, if I were to tell you, okay, you got a funeral coming up. Somebody's got a funeral. Their friend of theirs died. And I came to you and said, hey, make sure, make sure you don't have a clown run the procession, the funeral procession. It would be like, what? It would put you on, what a stoop, what a ridiculous thing to say. I'm telling you. Have you ever seen an ox and a donkey try to plow? It's ridiculous. That's a red flag that you're supposed to, hey, there's something here that you're supposed to be drawing out that is much deeper than obviously yoking an ox with a donkey, all right? Well, again, let me give you a real-life example of this in, in Israel's history. Ezra 4.1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel... You want to talk about revival, going to rebuild the temple is the essence of revival. That is the essence. And the adversaries are coming. And what do they want? They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. They wanted to mix. The devil was very clever. 
we're going to come and help you. He wanted to mix the seed. He wanted to plow an ox with a donkey. This is what he wanted to yoke the two as the ox is going forth and treading out the grain and doing the work of the kingdom. Let's bring a donkey into the mixture. It would have been catastrophe. But fortunately, they refused it. They did not. They, they, were, they had their wits about them. They understood what was going on. Going back, Leviticus 22, 11, we're going to go to the third one. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You, you, are you noticing a trend here? Exact same concept. Do not mix what should not be mixed over and over again. Pure is to remain pure. Our garments are to remain pure. This is about our garments. Where, where have we read about that? Revelation. You have found a few names even, you have found, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Same terminology is going across the board. And I can show you many other passages to support this. Revelation talks about the garments a lot. And in Revelation 19, they are, the, the righteous are donning these white garments, and it's said to be the righteous acts of the saints. They obeyed God. They kept his commandments. Okay, so looking at this, just wrapping it up. Look at every single one of these. We have three different illustrations all telling us the same thing. Do not mix the pure with the impure. And I'll close with this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. Look at what Paul says, yoked. Where do you think he got this? You cannot make this stuff up. We just went through the ox. You're not to yoke an ox with a donkey. And he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Mashiach with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He just taught Deuteronomy 22. The spirit of the Torah. Now this is not to say, I'm not going to tell you you should be going to sow physically seed in your vineyard that's mixed. No, that's, that is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if you think that's, what, that's all that that commandment means, you completely missed the whole picture. This is the importance of the spirit of the law. We're going to close here for today.